welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Welcome back, episode 13. Say hi to the people, Megan. Hello, everyone. Okay, this is our third episode about the emotional lives of teenagers by Dr. Elisa Demore. Today, we're talking about the shift when adolescence puts a new emotional spin on everyday life. I'm gonna hop right into it to respect your time. Our teenagers' brains are under major construction. So she has this term for it that she calls gawky brains (laughs) because they're lopsided, (laughs) right? Like they're not always um, balanced. So that we're in the gawky brain phase for this chapter, talking about kind of the beginning and, well, she kind of goes through the whole adolescent brain development thing. But she talks about how this lopsidedness can lead to random breakdowns. And she says adolescence begins at 10 or 11. Before the outward signs of puberty begin, the brain begins to undergo change. Good news or bad news, this goes on till about 19, according to the World Health Organization. Good news or bad news. I I don't know. Like, yay that their brains are developing, but boo that we have to live with them while it does. Until 19. (laughs) Yeah. And then she says, by 13, the emotion centers of the brain have been enhanced, but the perspective maintaining parts of the brain have not. They know how to get super emotional, but they don't know how to keep it in perspective. (laughs) I'm so glad that we covered this stuff, considering I have an 11-year-old in my house. It just gives me excitement of what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> just around the bend for you. Yeah. So basically, it's a perfect storm for a meltdown. Absolutely. If now you know there are a wide range of emotions and you can feel them. But, but also, you don't know what to do with them. <laughs> also, you have no ability to maintain perspective. Yeah. Right on. This is awesome. She said it peaks around 13 or 14, then things level out and taper down from there. Good news. I have a 15 and a half year old, so I can vouch for that. It does start to settle down. I love the subheading for this chapter. The title is Why Your Teenager Hates How You Chew. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Which I think is amazing. And she starts by telling this story about this teen girl that's part of her practice. And the parents actually come and see her because Mm -hmm. the parents are like, she's having all these random breakdowns. We've told her she needs counseling. She's telling us no. So we're getting counseling. (laughs) She's like, all right. So um, she tells them about, or they tell her about these different breakdowns that she has at home. And she basically explains to them, okay, you're in this developmental phase called separation individuation. So she says if she had the option, that's what psychologists call it, separation individuation, she'd rename it when parents become totally mortifying (laughs) or the several months when your teenager can't stand how you chew. So um, the phase basically is defined by separation. So this is when kids are building an independent distinct identity from their parents so basically she goes on to call it their own brand so moving forward she'll say their brand and then the individuation is that they want it wholly distinct from their parents Mm. so separation building an identity distinct from their parents and then individuation is entirely different right as an example for the individuation she talks about one of her a teenage boy that she knows who would not play catch with his dad for a year despite his dad being a very good athletic baseball player because baseball 
was his thing and he mm. knew it was going to be his thing going forward and he needed that like year off from doing to it with separate. his dad yeah to create an individual identity around it she says separation is they're annoyed when what we do doesn't match their new brand mm. so she told a story about a teenager who wouldn't have her friends over because her mom dressed what she thought was frumpy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she just, that didn't match her new identity. Mm-hmm. So that's her separation, right? She's annoyed that what her mom was doing doesn't match her new brand. And then the individuation is when they're annoyed when what we do does match their new brand because <laughs> they need it to be wholly theirs. So so basically we can't win. Yes. That's what I hear you she saying. She basically <laughs> settles it by saying... So everything we do is annoying (laughs) while they're in this separation individuation phase. Love that for us. (laughs) But the good news, hang on for the good news, is that it isn't personal at all. Sure. It's all inside their brains and we have to just roll with it. And then she did address too why girls are nastier to their moms during this season. And she said it it can be harder for them to separate from their moms. Sure. A lot of times they're more like their moms than their dads. So their moms will get some of the nastiness specifically because they're trying to too similar. Yeah. Yeah. Be independent and they feel too similar. So her suggestion when your teen comes at you like this, because we don't want to validate the mistreatment of other people. She says, you could say you could be friendly. Tell me what's wrong while being civil or let me know you need some space. Anything else is off the table just Mm -hmm. to kind of establish that boundary. Sure. And then she says, when you lose your cool, because you will lose your cool during this phase because it's very frustrating, she says, apologize. We have to model relational repair, which that takes us back to good inside, right? Getting good at that repair thing. Um, So she's like, when you lose your cool, just apologize. And then she says this, and I thought this was super interesting. Try not to hold a grudge. So their moods are moving so quickly that we're still mad about something they've completely forgotten. Um, She says, the more we can be with our teens moment by moment, the better. Here's where she says there's good news. Teens work at cultivating their brands by getting serious about the things they care about. So this is when you see them really lean into the subjects in school that they're good at or want to be great at. Their sports, their artistic talents, their clubs, their activities, even finding ways to make money. All of this develops a healthy self for them away from their parents. And she said ages 13 and 14 are the toughest. So if you're in that phase... It won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. That's exactly right. She talks a little bit about heightened friction because teens have our number. When they go to point out our weaknesses, they're right. Mm -hmm. They live with us. They have watched us for a decade, right? At least a decade plus. Right as they're about to leave home, they start to notice our shortcomings. And in time, they realize that everyone has shortcomings, Mm -hmm. but there's a little window there between when they notice we have shortcomings and when they accept that... Everyone does. Yes. And then she said, sometimes it can really get under your skin and hurt your feelings and have an impact on you. So that's the time to phone a friend or ask your parenting partner, hey, the kid said this to me. Like, is that valid? Do I need to work on that? Yeah. Rather than um, taking everything personally and seriously right from the get-go. She basically says, there's going to be additional friction at home during this time because they want more independence. Mm -hmm. But that's not always safe. Sure. And so she says, if everyone's doing their jobs, kids are pushing the boundaries and we are holding them. 
And then she says, let's make it our aim not to avoid conflict, but to have productive conflict. And the mark of productive conflict is being able to look at it from the other's perspective. So she says, go so far as to say, okay, I'm going to try to describe this situation from your perspective. And then she says, you go into it. Everyone you know is going to this party. You want to be allowed to go to, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And then ask them to do the same. For you. Now can you describe this situation from my perspective? Right. Just as a practice in that healthy conflict. I love the definition of healthy conflict being being able to see it from another yeah. person's perspective. I think I'm going to use that in my house. Yeah, for sure. Going forward. I love that. She talks about keeping them safe. And she says the biggest thing we can do to keep them safe is to have high behavioral standards. Mm. If we expect them to misbehave, sure, they will. Yeah. Right? And then she says, center discussions about risky behavior around safety. Mm. She's like, make that your highest aim in those conversations. She actually says, I can't overstate how important it is to keep safety at the center of those discussions because kids can hear that. Yeah. yeah. We want you to be safe. Appeals to the reasonable part of what they've got going on. And then she says, because their brains are seeking out new and exciting opportunities, we have to provide safe versions of that Mm. so like for her as an adolescent it was skiing she loved to ski she would get some of her adrenaline yeah adrenaline need for risky stuff out of skiing so what things can we find for our kids to do that are safe Mm -hmm. but also engage that that exciting new experience need right and then she talks about starting life online and i think some of this a lot of this stuff is um pretty obvious, but I'm going to just give you a quick recap on it. She says there's a correlation between cell phone use and teen depression. So teens who spend a lot of time on their phone are more likely to be depressed. She also says, nonetheless, we have reason to think that teenagers can have both good and bad outcomes from spending time online. And I listened to another expert talk about this and she calls it digital vegetables. Mm. So like if our teens are learning online learning how to budget or learning how to make a new recipe or doing something like that those are digital vegetables like we want to encourage that kind of use online but not other kind of use online you know excessive amounts of times on social media or gaming all that stuff so instead of being blanket you know we're not going to do this Mm -hmm. we're going to say hey we're going to seek out positive experiences online let's do some of these other things so that they learn there's balance and she said one adolescent girl in her practice said to her i love my phone and i hate it too so they know oh they do yeah Yeah. they for sure know and then she says um, we need to have the open conversation with our kids about how digital platforms are marketed to them to hook them in to make them spend their money to make them spend their time like they are designed to trap them basically so have that conversation straight out and say hey don't fall prey to this thing then she talks about keeping technology in its place so she says it's not even so much the actual technology it's how much time they spend with it right restricted use of it yeah and so she's like just have the conversations Mm -hmm. hold the boundaries all that stuff but then she talks about pornography and this stat online pornography is so accessible that 93 percent of boys and 62 percent of girls are exposed to it by age 17 
That's crazy. So it's important to monitor it. Mm -hmm. And she says the number one thing is limiting access to technology overnight because that's when they start to feel out of control around content that can leave them uneasy. And also, it's just a good idea for them to sleep. Yeah. And so if we don't have... If we don't have access to technology overnight, they get better sleep. Yeah, I know sure. a lot of families where the internet shuts off at a certain time mm-hmm. of night. Yeah. Um, at my house, you turn your phone into my nightstand before mm-hmm. you go to bed. I mean, there's a lot of things um, that can be done to hold um, technology in the proper place. So think about that. And then she talks about how this is also the stage when they start to get into relationships, romantic mm-hmm. relationships, and their friendships start to become more solid more and more adult. Yeah. yeah. She suggests that you listen for when your teen starts to put the topic of romance on the table. But she says, don't expect them to come to you and be like, Mom, I'm considering entering a romantic <laughs> relationship. She's like, it's more likely to be that they want to sit down and watch a rom-com with you oh, or that um, they'll tell you that a friend now has an official girlfriend. Yes. That's to open the conversation. Yeah. And so don't miss the conversation opening because it's not going to be right overt is what she says. And then she says, talk in specific terms about what makes for any good relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Healthy relationships are equitable. They're kind, they're enjoyable. They're communicative, right? Mm -hmm. And unhealthy relationships are lopsided, harsh, or stressful. We want to help them define what a good, healthy relationship can look like. And I think that's important in the context of their friendships, too. And then she gets to talking about why teenagers dislike school. They have this drive for autonomy, identity, and independence. And then what does school ask them to do? You sit down, follow the rules, do what you need to do, right? So she talks about the common scenario where a teenager strongly dislikes a class and then is significantly underperforming in it Mm -hmm. because of that. And she basically says, you need to just be frank with them. Say, I get it. You feel about English class right now the way I feel about beats. I eat them only when I have to, which as an adult is almost never. And then you point out from there, like, hey, no one says you have to like English, but we need to come up with a solution that makes the class palatable enough that you get a decent grade. So just being frank about it and saying, hey, you don't have to like all of this, but we uh, still got to get through it. Yeah, we've got to get through it. And then talking to them about how our tastes change over time. Like you may not like English now, but Mm. I always tell my kids too. You may be in a conversation at a party somewhere where somebody wants to discuss The Great Gatsby. I know it sounds like off, but somebody might be like, oh, it's kind of like in The Great Gatsby when blah, 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 blah. And you'll be thankful in that moment that you read the book. So read the book. (laughs) I don't know if that's valid or not, but every once in a while I'm thankful for something I had to read back in the day. Agreed. So she closes up this whole chapter on how their emotionality starts to affect our lives by saying, even when the emotions involved in normal adolescent development are unpleasant, unwanted, or troublesome, they can still be the ones that make the best sense in the moment. What really matters is that adolescents learn to manage their disruptive feelings effectively. And in the next chapter, she's going to go into exactly that, (laughs) how to help them manage all these feelings. Can't wait to learn from that chapter. I know. Let's go. All right. We will see you next week. Remember, whatever you're facing in parenting, it won't always be this way. Have a great day.
How do you follow Will Smith in the snow? How? You follow his fresh prints. Oh my gosh. <laughs>